Hey everyone, welcome to the Higher Points Podcast. Um, Nick Sauer is here in the studio with my buddy Nate Hyatt as usual, and we have Bill Howard back on the show. Uh, if you don't know who Bill is, he was back on episode 38 where we talked about uh, some of his stories, some of his leadership and time in law enforcement where he retired as a major. Well, we have him back on because... Uh, you know, the, the one of the hot button issues was the Uvalde school shooting or the Robb Elementary School shooting down in Texas. And kind of like uh, it to me, it seems a little bit like it's the it's the modern day Columbine in the sense of the lessons learned and the things that we need to to make sure that we're doing better in the law enforcement community and just kind of discuss some of the leadership there stuff like that. And it's always going to be interesting to kind of catch like I'm, I'm a street level officer, but to also see maybe some of uh, also his. Uh, supervisory side like i said he retired out as a major so to see his um his viewpoint from that kind of thirty thousand foot view of maybe even how he would have done things differently or something like that so um he is with us remotely uh, he hasn't traveled back to where we could find a time where we could all get together so we're meeting together on uh, google meet and we're going to get him going so uh how you doing today bill great great good to be with you nick and nate Nick and Nate's excellent adventures. <laughs> hey, yeah. There's the alternate podcast uh, title of things don't work out. <laughs> uh, so uh, you just want to kind of give a, uh, a just a, a brief description of who you are, where you came from and everything like that, just for those that maybe haven't listened to episode 38 yet. Be glad to. Uh, my name is Bill Howard. I worked in law enforcement. Well, I'm still in law enforcement about 40 years now. 36 years at Kansas City, Kansas Police Department, where I served from a cadet at the age of 18. I came on at 82, in 1982 at the age of 18, and I served there until I retired in 2018. And I retired as a major. And uh, part of that, part of my duties as a major was I was a commander over the, the SWAT team special operations unit. And, um, I was never a sergeant in that unit. I was never a captain in that unit, but I was an operator in that unit back in the early nineties for three years. So I was a point man and a cover man on an entry team. And we had a, a 10 man team and we, uh, we did a multitude of tasks. Our primary task was drug raids. And if you remember the, the early 90s, there was a lot of crack cocaine. So we did a lot of training. And I'd been to gun site several times to train in Prescott, Arizona. And went there with some SWAT team members. I also trained at Thunder Ranch. And uh, as a commander, I went to some training in Salt Lake City, Utah, where uh, we went to the NTOA National Convention and spent a week there training with those guys. So have a little bit of experience in uh, special operations, but by no means am I the guru. I've just uh, spent time both as an operator and in a command post. So you know, for what we're going to talk about today and the bulk of this, the lion's share of this is going to be about that. I just want to put those qualifiers out there. Yeah. So uh, just kind of where we're at least where I'm getting my information from. And, and I don't know if you are from different sources, Bill, but like I kind of didn't I don't really like the idea of watching CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, etc. when those things are going on and and 
trying to learn anything or make any type of a judgment or anything based on those news reports because they're just trying to get whatever soundbite they can to get people to watch them more to sell more ad space and they don't really fact check much of anything so for me the texas house committee put out a an investigative committee report on that and that was kind of what i led led me to read that whole thing uh, which you heard me mention a little bit on the podcast previously it's 82 pages long and that's kind of where i got my information from and so the things that i'm going to be talking about typically are going to be the information that i got from that report today okay so just to clarify we're talking about rob elementary yes and uh, we're talking about uvalde texas that's going to be the lion's share of the discussion today yeah uh, as i understand it right yes okay so just to give you a little background of what i've <clears throat> watched and learned about the situation uh, i've watched the hallway security cameras i've watched sergeant daniel coronado's body cam and officer mendoza's body cam i've watched and reviewed the commentary from jocko willink uh, michael glover from phil craft survival a multitude of news stories uh, probably watched over 25 news stories uh, and i've gathered information both from the report you mentioned <clears throat> and from the alert report from advanced law enforcement rapid response training i didn't even know that one was out i would love to get a copy of that and read that because that's they're the de facto Actually, yeah, I sent that to you, but for whatever reason uh it wouldn't come across as a text, so I sent it through you through to you through an email as oh, well. Okay, but I have it right here in front of me. Gotcha. I can try to email it to you if you're interested. Well, so just to give, uh, I guess, a little bit of background on from what the, the the investigative committee said happened was essentially you kind of had a, a single parent household, a troubled young man um, who really didn't have a whole lot of disciplinary issues in school. Um, you know, your typical small run-in things that kids get, but nothing that really made huge, like... No big red flags. Like red flags, at least from the Texas House yeah. Committee point yeah, of view. Yeah, there was, there was red flags. Well, right, them. right. But I'm saying as far as, like, there was in the, like, like the messages that he was sending friends and things like that. But I'm, I'm talking from the school's perspective. Like, he, he was, he was truant, correct? He, he had some truancy right. issues. right. But as far as like he'd never like outright threatened and said like I'm gonna shoot the school up or anything like those things that people would like expect to see right that you see from uh, the old like from other news reports. Um, I I don't know a lot about him. I just know that uh, on social media his nickname was actually the school shooter because they had already typecast him as a school shooter because yeah. he had some suicidal ideations and. Um, he'd even mentioned it on some of his social networking, however, and in the games he was playing. However, my understanding about him is that he was talking to people on different continents. Yes, right. And, and it wasn't even local people he was chatting with. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And so, you know, and he'd been trying to get, he wasn't old enough to purchase firearms uh, for a long time while he was having a lot of this communication and a lot of this ideation. He tried to get family members to to buy him firearms, which they had said no. Uh, so fast forward, he's old enough to purchase these firearms. Um, he kind of, uh, he, he shoots grandmother, correct, before he goes to the school. Mm -hmm. 
Um, he he he'd moved out from mom because him and mom were having issues, uh, which I thought was interesting, Bill, because in the last podcast you talked about the the elephants and the bull elephants being removed from the herd, and that you know moms can only uh, you know control them essentially for so long. So it was kind of like that same situation in this. He he moves out, moves in with grandma, gets the guns. She is like wanting to take his cell phone away. He shoots her and then proceeds to the school from there. Yes. So uh, I guess, uh, Bill, you've done a whole lot more research on this than I have. So from, from there, I guess I'll kind of let you take it away and, and then we can just kind of discuss from there. Okay, like I said, I had retired from Kansas City, Kansas Police Department in 2018. But in 2019, I went back to work and I'm currently working at a campus as a campus officer uh, at a junior college in Kansas. And and, uh, I just have to say that this junior college that I'm at, which I really don't want to mention right now, but the junior college I'm at is way, way more prepared for that situation. And they have so many other safeguards that are in place to address this and and or prevent it. And so I also spoke to my nephew who works in Texas. He's a Texas law dog. And he knows some of the officers that were at the scene. So maybe I can clear up some of the issues from the perspective of, uh, you know, what the public knows versus what law enforcement is talking about. So hopefully we can clear that up today. So what I know is that Uvalde, Texas is a border town population, about 16,500. They have a small police department of about 28 officers. They have a dedicated police department to the school district with about, I want to say six officers is what I was told, but I I didn't actually look that up. They have a chief, chief Arredondo, and uh, we're going to talk about him uh, today. Uh, Uvalde's located uh, about 80 miles west of downtown San Antonio, about 55 miles east of the Mexican border. And the incident uh, involving Rob Elementary, I, there were 19 children murdered and two teachers were murdered. And I believe there were 17 additional people injured in that incident the two or more police officers right so i'm assuming and presuming that you and everybody listening has has watched at least the hallway video and has made their own presumptions up to this point right yeah, pretty easy to do <laughs> yeah let me give you a little bit of background on the school itself they had been through alerts training or Alice training at the school, they knew the protocol and they were addressing the protocol. The shooter uh, shot his grandmother in the face. He drove to the school. He crashed in a ravine. He got out of his vehicle and two men approached him from a nearby funeral parlor and he shot at them. Those guys took off running. They were uninjured, but the officers were already en route because uh, I think they were en route to the shooting at his house. And then they were notified of this crash. The officer, there was an officer already en route. He gets out of his vehicle. He's got a grab bag of ammo and he's got a rifle, 223, I believe. And 
<clears throat> after he shoots at these two people, he climbs out of the ravine and he starts walking towards a school and he makes it onto the school ground and he's passed by a police officer who's racing to the scene. Police officer doesn't notice him. And as I understand it, <clears throat> he starts firing shots into the school from outside. There were 24 rounds expended outside towards the school uh, going into the classroom that he ended up attacking. Uh, some of the rounds went into the classroom he ended up attacking. So there had been a teacher in the back of the school who watched him arrive, who kicked the rock out, who shut the doors, what they're claiming. She initiated the lockdown process and they were calling the police, telling the police what was going on. So all this was live. Right. So he makes it into the school. There are police officers already on the scene. Supposedly, one officer had him in his sights, asked permission to shoot the suspect who'd already fired on the school. So you could presume that he had the right guy. Now, that story changed later that, no, that that was actually a teacher dressed just like the suspect. And we can verify that through crossing videos or whatever. So he was 150 yards out and he misidentifies the shooter as a teacher. He waits for permission to shoot the shooter who he later says, nope, nope, that wasn't a shooter. That was just a teacher. And, you know, we made a wise decision not to shoot that person before they went inside. That is suspect to me. I would focus that if I were investigating this because he was positive at the time he had the shooter in his sights. And later uh, he says, no, but that wasn't the shooter. It ended up being somebody else, according to all the camera views that they looked at. I'm not privy to the camera views, but the, the house seems to be satisfied with that answer. And so does the Texas Department of Public Safety, they seem to be satisfied with that answer from their, their review of it. But let's be clear, there were officers on the scene before he made it in the building, right? Right. Um, now, this is where the fog of war comes in. So if, if you're not used to, as a police officer, getting that adrenaline dump and you get one suddenly out of nowhere, you're going to get tunnel vision, and if you don't breathe breathe through that, you're going to end up suffering some of the side effects of adrenaline, especially a mad rush of adrenaline, right? So I can understand how the officers could drive past the suspect. Yeah, I agree. They really don't probably have a great description of him yet. He's got long hair. He probably looks like a girl. I don't know. But <clears throat> we can all safely say and admit that if we had caught him on the outside of that building you know this never would have happened right yeah i would agree mm -hmm. <clears throat> but i mean well, I, I would say and and i don't, I don't know T texas from what i say i have a friend that is also a texas law enforcement officer and they do a pretty tremendous amount of training uh as a state in general i mean their standards are decently high uh they are a well-trained well-equipped well-paid police force um, and, and I'm curious of like, you know, also what, what the, the question is, cause did, if he had like a LVPO, the limited or LPVO, the limited power variable optics that you put on top of, um, rifles these days that are like the one to fours, 
um, or if he just had a red dot or if he just had open sights of, you know, um, like what, what that shot would have looked like. Iron sights, Nick. I think he had iron sights. And I yeah, mean, if you look at, you look at the rifles that they were carrying, most of them had iron sights. Yeah. And so, you know, making a 150 yard shot is very doable. I mean, like that's, that's no problem with a, with a 223 style rifle. Um, but so I think maybe that's probably why, and again, I'm, I'm making inferences here, uh, why they were probably satisfied with that answer because, you know, it, it is, uh, 150 yards and then in the fog of war and and in that moment of making that decision, that probably was why they were willing to give that, that benefit of the doubt to that officer. How do you train a guy for that? The breathing through, you know, your adrenaline, that kind of thing. Is that something you can really train? Yeah, it it is something I've been trained Athletes are more used to it than uh, people who are Mm -hmm. non-athletes, which is probably a reason why law enforcement traditionally takes athletes or former athletes. And they traditionally take people who've been in the military because they're used to the adrenaline dump and they know how to breathe through it. Um, You know, in a pursuit is a great example of that and that's why they have us talking during a pursuit a car chase because you're breathing and, it, and as long as you're breathing to talk you're going to slow you're going to slow down your heart rate and you're going to get more oxygen to your brain yeah and you're going to be visually better and more uh, capable of driving well and we also get trained in training of that stress inoculation to where we get put into stressful situations in training so that it, so that you're more used to responding to things like that, that it's not, it's not that shock to the system as much as it would be if you weren't used to it. Yeah. So that's another, another way. So, so he, if we, if we'd, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you there if you had something, but so we kind of kind of go to where we could have taken the guy down before he came into the school. When you say the officer went by him, you're talking the officer went by him in a vehicle. It wasn't like he was running on foot right. and like passed by raced, him shoulder to shoulder. Raced past the school and raced past the subject shooter. Right. Okay. In a vehicle. Gotcha. Uh, kind of, I kind of want to pause here for a second and talk about the officer who didn't take the shot. Okay. Two dynamics were going on there. One, the officer didn't have the confidence to make the shot or take it without permission. And the other dynamic is you had a sergeant who didn't have the confidence in the officer to give him that permission or in the scenario to give him that permission. Two dynamics going there. Keep that in mind. Um, Because uh, I had a scenario very similar to this. We had a sniper situation in Kansas City, Kansas, where a guy had posted up at a school, coincidentally, and it was late at night, but he was shooting from the ballpark of the shoe of the school. He'd parked his truck uh, near the ball field and he climbed out and he started shooting at a house of a girlfriend or an ex-girlfriend and started shooting into their home. Police arrived and <clears throat> they determined that the shooting was coming from the ball field. So they drove towards it and he shot at a police officer. Police officer received shrapnel to the chin. We surrounded the park. Um, We set up a perimeter and I ended up in the command post that night as a captain. And the the subject shooter um, expelled over 100 rounds, shooting in the direction of law enforcement and the house all night long. 
we had to va- we had to vacate the houses while containing him. But eventually, our tactical team made its way towards him. Like an hour later, they made their way towards the shooter at the ball field, and the shooter had run out of ammo for his rifle. Now he had stashed ammo throughout the park area, but officers had kind of corralled him or closed in on him. So he had to take off running. He ran towards his truck, got into his truck and took off. He uh, was confronted by law enforcement who shot at him. Unfortunately, we had uh, frangible rounds at that time and none of the rounds penetrated the truck. And all the rounds were buried in into the shell of the truck and the subject made it out of our inner perimeter after shooting over a hundred rounds at helicopters and law enforcement. And now we're, we're probably at one o'clock in the morning or something of that, that time frame, And he takes off. Goodness gracious. He I makes, can only imagine. He makes it, yeah. He makes it out of our inner perimeter. And we had an officer on the outer perimeter. Uh, and he was the fairly new officer. And the officer asked me as I'm running from the command post to the street, in the direction where the suspect is driving. The officer's about, I don't know, 50 yards away from me. And he's got a, he's got his police car situated in an intersection to, to stir traffic around that location. Right. The subject is driving his truck directly towards the officer. And the officer asked me for permission to engage permission to engage a suspect. Now, why? Exactly. I was going well, to ask the same question. Why does the officer do that? Because he doesn't have the confidence that if he takes that shot without permission, that he's covered legally. So he's got a he's got a commander. He's got someone in authority right there. He wants to get that checkpoint done. Fortunately, in my mind, I know this is a homicidal maniac. We can't allow him to get out of our perimeter. Um, so without question, I just said, take him out. And the officer was a very good shot. He was one of the star shooters at the range in his class and plugs him right between the eyes. And the, the guy uh, ends up crashing and dying. And, um, like in a moving vehicle, the ramifications for that was that that officer <laughs> was on paid leave and, and, uh, nobody contacted him telling him hey you're you're good you're good and so i contacted him and just to check on him and nobody in the other chain of command had ever checked on him and he was nervous as an officer would be because you've just taken human life and i just said hey man you're good don't worry about it you asked permission i authorized it i told you to go ahead you're following a lawful order you're covered in so many ways state laws covering you, you know, but there was still that lack of confidence. I see that happening and playing out that exact scenario happening and playing out with these officers at the scene. Okay. So I watched the video and I've heard about this officer not shooting who I still believe was the suspect. Um, and until I see evidence contradicting that, I, I believe that he had the suspect in the sights and didn't pull the trigger because of lack of confidence. And the other part is the lack of confidence in that supervisor. Just hang on to that thought because we're going to talk about that later. 
in the broadcast, if you don't mind. Yeah, and I'd, I'd like to give a story similar to that to il- help illustrate your point as well. Is uh, I kind of have a converse of, of your story. I talked to a friend of mine that works for a state agency, and he was a precision rifle marksman as well. They had a guy that was going through an apartment building, blowing holes in it. Like he was literally going from apartment to apartment through through walls because he'd broken his way through the walls, and like they've got this whole building surrounded. I mean, it it, it was a it was a bad situation. So just to illustrate the point is is like uh, my my buddy he had another guy take the shot and the and the whole idea behind law enforcement and lethal force is to stop the threat. Once the threat ceases and once that that is the level of force that we can use, we we stop the threat. We're done. So somebody, another, another precision rifle marksman had the shot, took it on the guy. The guy was down like, and he was obviously like, I mean, like writhing in pain. He's the, he no longer has a weapon in his hand. Well, the other precision rifle marksman radios in saying like, I can see him. I've got him in my sights. Well, he gets an order from the command post to shoot. Well, he had the confidence to say no, because the threat had ceased. And at that point, he would have been committing a murder on a guy that was just laying there that was no longer a threat because he'd already been engaged. So that was the uh, the converse to that. And he actually even went into a debrief and said, like, no, you know, I didn't feel right about that. That was not the right thing to do. That's not the way I was trained. And so that's kind of the converse of, of a little bit of what you're talking about. And I'm assuming what you're getting ready to lead into. Well, I mean, you make an excellent point. You do not have to follow an unlawful order. As a police officer, you, in fact, you have an ethical duty to do just the opposite of that and, and not follow it. And maybe the commander who gave the order believed at the time it was a lawful order. It doesn't matter right. if you believe it to be an unlawful order. You have an obligation to stand down, right? Yep. So it sounds like that's what happened. So after reviewing all the videos and stuff, Nick, I, I have come to the conclusion that Chief Arredondo had gross incompetence and negligence to lead in that situation. So I kind of want to focus a little time on him. He's an interesting guy. Um, He assumes command of that scenario, and he actually goes inside of the building to assume command from inside the building. He goes in there without a radio. Now, that's interesting to me because communications is probably the most important aspect. Uh, really, the breakdown of the situation is because of miscommunication and poor communication, as I see it. Yep. Chief Arredondo, if he wanted to be the incident commander, which he was the highest ranking person there. So by default, by NIMS training, he's the incident commander. Yep. You got to know what an incident commander's responsibilities are through your training do i do i know what they are i mean take a stab at it oh yeah yeah i mean essentially you're you're basically far enough away from an incident that you're not in danger that you're able to help make decisions you're able to help put things together but you're not close enough that you are you are in the danger you're in the hot zone to where you you are like an active part of the incident to where you're the boots on the ground like actually putting things into motion very well put so He should have withdrew from the school and he should have set up a command post. And from there, he could do more of a static decision making rather than uh, 
being in there to make the dynamic decision making that he is the highest ranking official there and he's also wants to be the trigger man in the situation those two do, uh, don't mesh in these kind of scenarios uh, chief ardano he he failed in so many ways but the most important way he fell he failed was by not taking responsibility after the fact for his decisions he should have fell on the sword he should have resigned immediately and he should have taken ownership of that situation because he was the incident commander and he never did even now i mean my understanding is he never gave a statement to uh, the investigators after the fact uh, he lawyered up um I think he understands that he made some mistakes. He's just unwilling to accept responsibility for yeah, it. Probably doing I some damage he, control. He's doing damage control, but uh, yeah, because he never stepped down. He should have resigned. He should have surrendered his position because he failed. Um, he should have taken extreme ownership like Jocko Willink would tell you to do. Um, but let's back up before that incident, because I believe that there's poor preparation that had occurred. Like, so if you're, if you're the leader of an organization, you you should be the one casting the vision. So in order to cast a vision, you have to have a vision of safety, right? You have to be thinking ahead. So he should have thought everything out ahead of time. So let's look at some of the ways he, he didn't he didn't prepare for this situation. He had no keys for any of the doors. They had been rekeyed. And he didn't get a master copy. Well, it's pretty important. <laughs> not only did you not have it, but none of your officers had it. Yep. I mean, that is a monumental failure. Like, I work at a junior college, and we have the master keys. There's no place on that campus that I don't have access to. Well, and well, Do you feel ahead. like there's some fault on the school, too? Like, with... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. First of all, how did it get in your school? Yeah. You know the lockdown procedure. So you're telling me you kicked the rock out of the back door, but he still got in? And the other part was, how did he get in room 111? It should have been locked down. Well, room 111, we found out uh, the, the locking mechanism failed from inside, so they couldn't lock it from the inside, and the teacher complained about it. Students were upset about it. So the faculty knew about it. It's weird that the chief didn't know about it, but everybody knew about it and did nothing about it. And it had been that way for, I'm going to say, weeks. It had been that way for uh, enough time that it should have been fixed. It wasn't like it happened that day or something like that, you know? Right. right. Um, and the chief, chiefs didn't have any way to communicate other than the cell phone. Well, it turns out that those radios didn't work inside of that school. Neither one, because they had one for the school district and one to get back to whatever unified dispatch center kind of handled the entire city. So neither yeah. radio worked inside the school. Yeah, and that's a problem. I mean, in the junior college I work at, there are several areas in the college that our radios won't get out. We know where those are. We know not to key our mics in those areas. But the broad scale, we can get out. So that's a problem. I mean, they couldn't communicate from within the school uh, to outside sources. They could hear. They just couldn't transmit. 
So, I mean, I think if I was the chief, I think I would have tried to correct that. I mean, I think I would have had some comms people come out and say, hey, we need a better system to where we can communicate if anything ever happens in these schools, right? But here's the problem that I see with the chief, and this is with all commanders, really. If So most commanders are house plants after a certain period of time in their career. They ask plant in a chair every day. They, and I was one of them. When I, when I got to the level as a major, I had so many responsibilities that involved my computer that you would have thought I was a gamer because I was on that damn thing all day, <laughs> only breaking to eat, uh, have coffee and gossip. I mean, basically I was, unless I was in a meeting, I was ass planted at my desk. So there's, there's, there's a problem with that. And, and here's the problem. You are no longer a dynamic decision maker. You're static in your decision making. When you've been out from the field, you've become the house plant or the indoor dog, you know, and you've gotten used to the comforts of home and you haven't had to face dynamic situations where your own personal life is in peril or those of your men, you shouldn't be making those decisions. That's the biggest failure I see with that chief. He put himself in a situation where it was dynamic. He wasn't used to that. And so what does he do? He, he calls it a containment. The guy's contained. He calls it a barricade. Well, you know what that is? I feel like that is because of his static decision-making. He wants things to return to normal. They call that a normalcy bias is what they call it psychologically. Our brains have all kinds of biases. And really all that is, is we make 35,000 decisions a day on a typical day. If we're active and we get out of our homes and we have to go to work, we're making 35,000 decisions a day. And if you're making that many decisions a day, a day, some of those have to, you have to take shortcuts, and that's what we call biases. You have to have those to not have a mental breakdown. So <clears throat> you have to automate so many decisions. And so one of those biases would be if you're not in dynamic situations very often, and then one comes along, you're not prepared. You haven't, what I call, primed yourself effectively to make effective decisions. Does that make sense? Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. So you guys are weightlifters, right? And you prime your muscles. You get the blood flowing to your muscles before you grab them heavyweights, right? You warm up. I do. Nate doesn't. Yeah. (laughs) Nate, you're going to suffer some shoulder and joint problems. Oh, hey. He already does. I suffer from them too, Nate, and they will keep you up at night. Trust me. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I digress. So what, what happens if you are a dynamic decision maker? You have a bias towards action, right? Does that make sense? For so sure. like you're, you're normally making decisions in the field 
where there's a threat to you or the community. Uh, so you have developed this bias towards action. Now, if you're on a SWAT team, or let's say you're 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 a football player, you guys look like you were football players, am I right? Nate was, yeah, I was. Okay, congratulations, Nate. <laughs> you had what what they would call a default aggressive, uh, default aggression is what they would call that mm-hmm. because after you know, being involved in contact sports and having to get aggressive day in and day out in practice. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever done any MMA fighting or, you know, if you've done any SWAT training or whatever, you develop what what is known as the default aggression. So that's the next level. Like if, if you're on a special operations, like in the military, Jocko Willink would say you're default aggressive because you can click over to you know, um, that game homicidal, yeah, homicidal or physical um, aggression immediately. Like you don't have to be primed; you're already primed. Mm-hmm. Like your mind doesn't have to jump over to that because you've already visualized it before you showed up that day. Well, it, you know that only lasts so long. So if you retire from a unit like that, like Jocko Willink's a commando and all that, but he's been retired now quite a while. But he has kept he's kept himself involved in MMA sports, so he's still default aggressive. He's he still could, you know, tie me up like a pretzel at the at the grocery store if I pinched his wife or something. You know what I mean? But other guys who have been combat ready have let that lapse, and they're no longer combat ready, and uh, they're not primed, is the way I like to put it. So. I have people that I work with uh, that are no longer in law enforcement, no longer in the military, but I work with them at the junior college and I I have great chats with them and they would tell me about their war stories. Right. But you could tell, you could walk up to this person and just take, you know, take them down. They would not be prepared for you. (laughs) And, uh, but as opposed to other people who are still in the training and still in the need, you know, still in the doing. So, Hold on to that thought. That's important. But did you have something, Nick, Nick on that? Um, I, I had some follow up questions after this. Um, okay. when, whenever you, whenever we get to that, so well, but I'll let you continue for now. Okay. So with the chief, he we we've already decided that he's probably a static decision maker. He's probably asked plants every day, like most commanders do, because of their responsibilities are different, right? Did he participate in alerts training? That's what I want to know. Yeah, that's not in any of the reports I've read. If he showed up to alert training, did he actually participate in it? Because let me tell you, in 2015, we brought alert training to Kansas City, Kansas, and we all participated from the chief down, my friend. We had sergeants from our TAC unit training us, and it was awesome. Absolutely awesome. But there was a time or two they had to kick me in the ass and tell me to go, 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 because I wasn't moving on the, quote, stimulus. The stimulus being the shots were being fired in the training. They kicked me in the ass a couple of times, and then we did that training all day for two days. And uh, if, if my memory serves me, it might have just been one day. But it was awesome training. It was absolutely the best training. Basically, 
we did it one one thorough time, I want to say one day, with just officers. And the next day we did it with TAC medics, I believe. And we use airsoft pistols, so you were shot at as well. And it was force-on-force training is what they call that, right? Anyway, my question in my mind would be, did that chief participate in it? Because my guess would be no. Because what he did in the hallway was treat this as a static situation, right? So he rifles in here, let's uh, 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 let's get the SWAT team in here and let's just hold it down, make sure no he doesn't escape through the roof and all these things, you know. What? The hell are you talking about, dude? Yep. Get in there. That's completely contrary to what we've all been trained since Columbine. Yeah, well, Columbine training, post-Columbine training uh, said go in, you know, in a diamond formation. Yeah, right. Work training says, you're it, dude. You're first on the scene. You take that shot. You don't need permission. Take default aggression. Which which, that was like an absolute, um, when you and I were talking, was an absolute kind of like a kapow moment for me when you and I were on the phone. And I can actually, this is this is how, like, much of a explosion in my mind it was for me i can picture exactly where i was at you and i were on the phone i was by the co-op feed mill in sterling kansas when you were like you basically said uh you know sometimes it's not our job to go home every day law enforcement officers and and admin is say well we got to get everybody home safe every day we got to get everybody home safe every day well in our job that may not actually be the goal for the day we need to make sure that our communities make it home safe first we are the ones that put ourselves in the way first, and we may not go home at the end of the day. And I was like, whoa, because that was a complete shift in my mindset in the sense of like, whoa, like that, that is what I felt my whole career. I felt that like, you know, I've always had that should that ever happen, kind of put me in coach mentality. And I, I'd never considered it from the even though it makes perfect sense. I just never heard it put that way before that the community goes home first, safe, and then us. And, and if we can have both happen at the same time, obviously that's the goal that we want to get to. But sometimes you're the lone guy going into a room with a guy that's got an AR and you may go down and then maybe the next guy gets him. Maybe he goes down, but maybe the third guy gets him and so on and so forth. So, Well, what you've described is what is called the priority of life model. So innocent citizen of the community, they're dependent on us. That's why they pay us. That's why they train us. That's why they give us all this equipment. By the way, you know, if we can get into the officers in actions at this point because of what you brought up. But um, remember, anyone who's listening, if you're law enforcement, the first responders have the most burden to stop an incident, especially an active shooter incident. The first responders have the best opportunity to diffuse it, to um, contain them and eliminate the threat. So they did a good job of containing the shooter, but they, they failed to eliminate the threat. So what, let's talk about, I don't want to pile on that everybody else is hating on these guys, and I don't think these guys were really cowards. I'm going to tell you what my theory is here at the end, but I don't think these guys were cowards. So they arrived rapidly. Um, 
you know, 24 rounds were, were fired in this. So they were trying to figure out where, where he was. Again, we're in the fog of war here, right? You can hear shots and echoes between buildings. You got officers arriving at all angles. They're communicating. They're trying to figure out where is this guy? What does he look like? Where's he right now? Meanwhile, an officer arrived at the grandma's house and they're communicating that, hey, I got a lady shot in the face here. So there's that going on. So within three minutes of the suspect entering the school, nine officers entered the school. Two of them had rifles. And three of them made their way towards the threat. You've seen the video, right? So yep. three of the officers, yep. one of them was, um, his name was Javi, and he wore a white shirt. It looked like maybe he was a detective or whatever. He he was on the ground for some reason. I, I don't know why he was on the ground, but he was on the ground for some reason. Let me describe the door. The door is a steel door. And in the middle of a door is a real narrow window. Well, this window in the door has mesh running through it, right? So it's a safety glass and it's supposed, it's like a chicken wire that runs through it. So it's a safety glass that will prevent you from like breaking the glass and reaching in and opening the door. They did that probably in the case that an active shooter was outside the door, right? So it'd be hard to shoot through the door, shoot through that window, and then make their way into, into that classroom. So they thought that through. That's a great door. But unfortunately, law enforcement couldn't, couldn't do much. What, what he didn't do was check the door, or if he did, he got shot. So they have all this fancy stuff protecting the classroom, except there's, there's sheetrock as a wall. So there's just a sheetrock wall on the interior side, but on the exterior side, it's this center block style stuff that, you know, could could protect, you know, from storms or whatever, you know. So the outside, there's been a lot of talk about why didn't they attack from the outside? Well, the windows were three feet off the ground. They were relatively small windows. They were tinted windows because down in Texas, everything's tinted because of all the sun. So you can't see inside the classroom, but you can see from inside to outside the classroom, right? But also, these teachers have shades that they've dropped in front of those windows uh, because of, you know, the sun bearing down all day and then, you know, kids not paying attention. So they had shades in front of all these windows, right? Could that be lockdown procedure for them too, is to like close those so maybe people can't see? Yeah, them? lockdown procedure would include that as well as shutting off the lights. And, you know, so the lights were off in the classroom, so you can't really see in the classroom. So there's been a lot of criticism, like two windows per classroom on that side of the school, and you couldn't see in those windows. So let's give the officers a little bit of credit. I mean, they couldn't do much with those windows. I mean, they could have started some distractions in that area and draw fire to themselves. Or let's face it, they could have gone to the door and drew fire to themselves. They could use the door as a barricade, actually, because it was a steel door. That What they shouldn't use is probably the sheetrock. Yeah. Which is how, if I had to choose between the two, it would be the door. Yeah, which is how... Um, 
the, the two officers were shot initially anyway. Um, they, well, they, they received fragments. They weren't really shot. They weren't yeah. hit with any, any hard rounds. And they retreated, right? Can't really blame them. You know, they're probably in that static mindset. Now this has gone hyper-ballistic, and they, they, they're having trouble. They, they've never really confronted this kind of a scenario, perhaps. And they've never been shot back at, and they don't know to stay in the fight and keep shooting or find the suspect. But you also have to realize there's kids in that room, so you've got to make a direct shot and be able to hit that suspect. I don't know if you're going to be able to focus too well in a situation like that where the room is darker on the inside. Well, they also talked about how when they came into that area, there was like kind of, you talk about the fog of war, there was a literal fog of war there where all of the gunpowder and the smoke and everything kind of hanging in the air. I'm sure that had a little bit to do with that decision-making process before, but that's also another good question of have they, have they participated in force on force trainings? Have they had a little bit of that pain inoculation? Because I know that's something that I've put our officers in the County through and of course, not everybody shows up, but I can't make, I can't force certain agencies to be there, but is, is, you know, working through that pain just because you're shot, you're not dead. Yeah. And you've been through my training and I've shown you the video of the officers that were cut down in Colorado, right? In Littleton. Yeah. You remember that video. Mm -hmm. I think what that video demonstrated very clearly is unless you have a level three vest or ballistic shield, it's worthless. Right. It cut through their vest that that two two three cut through the officer's vest like it was butter. One officer, she said she was hit six or seven times. I yeah, think it's quite a few. And then the, the other officers, you know, shot in the chest, and one of the officers was tragically killed. But um, we're placing too much emphasis on vests, I think, and, and ballistic shields. Now there are level three vests and shields that are out there, and the college I work for went out and invested in level three uh well but in other words it can stop rifle rounds yeah high-powered rifle rounds right um the reason why we're talking about the officers today because the suspect's already dead we can talk about the suspect too but i i just want to key on some of the things that happened in there right so the the number one problem after the suspect made it into that room, the number one problem was an officer steps out, and I think it was Sergeant Coronado. I don't know for sure, but you could hear him on the radio saying, the shooter is barricaded in an office. That is the single most detrimental thing to that incident and to those kids. That is the person that needs to be held to the highest standard because that changed it from dynamic to static. Because when we think office, we don't think that Active there's loss of life. Out. Yeah. And what what made him say that? Why why did he say that? If that was Sergeant Coronado, who I believe it was, because of the sound of the voice that I'd been hearing throughout the whole the whole video of him, my, what disturbed me about him is he was hyper-worried about the safety of his officers. He was continuously saying things like, be careful, guys, he's got a gun. Uh, slow down, be safe, be safe in there. Yeah. That is not your focus at this point. When we have an active shooter, especially with kids involved and teachers, these are innocent people 
that deserve our protection, right? So I like to say there's a time when we stop being safe and we start being dangerous. We move to the warrior mentality. And warriors don't think about their own safety when they're defending their fellow warriors or they're defending an innocent village or whatever. You move into that warrior mentality and you are dangerous. You don't tell your officers, slow down, be careful. He's got a gun. Watch the window. You don't say those kind of things in a dynamic situation. You say, get in there. Let's get him. Where is he? Let's go, guys. Those are motivating factors. And what Sergeant Coronado was doing was demotivating factors. Okay, and That's very important because he stopped the driving actions that was occurring organically or through the training of those officers. And he took it upon himself to worry about his officers. So there was a transition in thought that went from the safety of those children to, are my officers okay? I think that there's also been a little bit of a shift in training of law enforcement, and maybe you can comment to this a little more because you have significantly more experience than me is, is we're kind of moving towards the whole like de-escalation, 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 de-escalation. And when you talked about the house plant and the, the not being default, meant, uh, default aggressive is, you know, we're spending a lot of time focusing solely on de-escalation and not training our officers to be, to be aggressive because like, is there, is there, are, is de-escalation this negative thing? That's like, there's nothing positive that can come from it. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is there is a time to talk and there is a time to do work and we really need to be focusing on training our officers on both sides of that dichotomy um, again to, to reference uh, Jocko in his book if you wanted to take that even into a uh, take it from a management principle and into a law enforcement principle of it is a dichotomy if you have an officer that just kicks the door and guns everybody down each time that's a problem if you have an officer that shows up to an active shooter and wants to hand the guy a teddy bear and talk him out of the room that's a problem so you need to kind of find that balancing act. And that's where like good training and good leadership comes in. And also that on-scene leadership, like you talked about, is going to be a, an influential factor in essentially pushing people towards the goal at hand. Yeah, we call it the guardian mindset. Like we're we're the guardians. We're the sheepdogs of society. So we're, we're, we're overseeing the flock. And most of the time we're protecting them from themselves. You know, we're keeping them from driving too fast or from getting in fist fights or from battering their wives or whatever. We're protecting them from themselves. But there is a time when we have to actually destroy them. You know, they're a wolf. There's a wolf that's crept in here. And we have to, uh, that sheepdog has to become an attack mode. So, and that's what alerts training taught us is they taught us you know that became the national standard in 2016 um and um they taught the priority of life model that i teach in my course uh in decision making in my course and and it really makes things very simple if you understand that your life is really lower on the pecking scale or priority than innocent people once you begin to understand the priority of life and safety um, which is the National um, Tactical Officers Association model. They're the ones that created that. You know, ALERT just, uh, they seized on that terminology. But NTOA is the one that had been teaching that for many, many decades. 
So, and, and, the, and, you know, I had been in the tactical unit and I understood it, you know, we're, we're officer safety when we're just going in after suspects and suspects are alone. We're all about officer safety. We're going to throw flashbangs. We're going to, we're going to take it room by room. We're going to have a sniper post. We're going to take our time, right? If it's like a drug, uh, a drug warrant or it's like a high risk search warrant, right? But when we're talking about dynamic situations, which TAC units don't train enough for, and they haven't for decades, they need to train more dynamic. Um, I don't know about Texas, but I just mean here locally. They're they're more slow and methodical, and they got away from dynamics. Even in even in uh, drug warrants, they're more like let's call them out. It's not worth it for a bag of dope, you know. So they're they're doing less and less dynamics, so they're less prepared for it, right? So you know, we need to step it up in law enforcement. We really do, because as society is getting more volatile and more dangerous, we're becoming less dangerous. We're becoming more emasculated and we need to uh we need to get the right people in the right places for those situations we need to get people trained up and we need to hire people who can switch effectively back and forth from guardian to warrior we need it and we as law enforcement we need to get in shape i mean i'm i'm an example of that of course i'm 58 now but um we need to be able to make good decisions at the end of a run with our rifles and our vest on. You know, we need to be able to make, be clear headed instead of say stupid things like he's contained, he's barricaded in an office. Well, that's because of the fog of war and probably adrenaline, but also because you can't breathe in that moment and you're not making clear decisions, you know. So I think we as cops, we need to step it up a lot, like a thousand percent and get back in shape. But our communities need to support that effort. Mm -hmm. So what we don't see is the communities, um, you know, so law enforcement, we've talked about the mental health problems in law enforcement because of constant overexposure. So law enforcement needs to be mentally, physically, and spiritually um, fit to make good decisions and to be healthy, Right. But we don't see that. We don't see really if we're going to. OK, I know I'm bouncing around here, but if we are going to. Cause reform in law enforcement, those are. The trinity that we need to focus on is the officer's mental, physical and spiritual health need to be in tandem. Right. And we, we need to we need to allow officers time to work out on duty. If that's a priority and we don't want officers to eat jelly donuts, then we need to make healthy food available for them throughout throughout their day on duty, especially these guys working 10 or 12 hour days. What are they doing? They're drinking coffee. They're eating jelly donuts. They're, they're eating a lot of sugar to stay awake. It's just quick and, and easy on the go most of the time for you guys. Yeah, that's what I find is it's just easy to... You know, it's easy to go to Casey's where this pre-made thing is made because uh, I've got like another call. I'm just going to grab that, snack on it on the way to the call, and then boom, you know, move on with my day. You know, and I was the same way. I worked midnight. I understand. But we are a joke. We really are. We're kidding ourselves if we think that we're the warriors out here saving people. We're not. We're a joke. Well, I think that we proved that. Shape, we we're proved that. Well, 
I would say in my case, any, anyway, if I had to run a hundred yards and then make a shooting decision, that would, I'm not ready. I need to get back in shape. And I, I, I just wish the community would, if they want to reform law enforcement, the community would support that and say, Hey, we want you guys in shape. So we're going to give you time to get in shape on duty. I know Sterling, they like the city pays for the memberships for at the gym for them, but it's not like you get a, you don't get paid to go work out. Actually, um, we, we do, we could, we could choose to go to the gym during, uh, during work i've done it several times especially when i'm doing like wheat harvest mm-hmm. and i don't I'm, I'm doing wheat harvest and then i come to work and i work and then i sleep and so um you know i i can go to the gym i, I would yeah. say that if i were doing it every day as like a general rule it would probably be frowned upon overall but going in there once in a while would not be frowned upon there'd be people bitching at you on the sterling bulletin yeah. about like, exactly. oh we're paying this <laughs> it, guy to work exactly out. exactly well, that's the thing. There's always going to be backlash when you do something positive for law enforcement. And I can tell you, we had a chief that was a runner and he was a marathoner. He was an Ironman and he encouraged us to get on board with that. And so we did. Um, I shed 40, 45 pounds and I was running marathons. I ran seven half marathons and I, I didn't start running until I was in my mid forties. And, you know, I got laughed at like, Oh, look at you, Brown noser. I'm like, no, this is a healthy decision. A choice I'm making. This man did inspire me. He gave me some things to read that clicked and I got in a weight loss program. I got my weight down. I started running and I'd never felt so good. I could whip my two teenage boys in the, in, in wrestling in my living room every night because I could breathe again. You know, and but I was 185 pounds and they were I think they were 185 and 200, but I was throwing them all around the living room. They were they were uh, high school wrestlers and football players. And but I had that that old man strength, they called it, (laughs) (laughs) where I knew leverages and different. (laughs) Amen. There's a little bit to that, uh, that uh, just the experience of the world. (laughs) Pressure points play just a little flirt that line uh, yeah, yeah, playing hey, dirty hey man pressure hey man if you ain't <laughs> fighting dirty you ain't winning all right so i so we're, we're kind of all over the map here i just kind of want to close this out a little bit about before you start in on what you want to talk about and as far as this goes but the biggest problem was they said the shooter barricaded in an office and uh but they still had shots fired that should have been their stimulus to move, according to alert training. My understanding is they all had it. But they had, they didn't have a bias towards action at that time because it had gone static. If it was barricaded in an office, why would you? Why would you attack that, right? Well, there's no office in that whole building. And somebody should have spoke up. Somebody who worked there. How about the chief? Yeah, or one of the officers that knew the building intimately. Like one of the ISD exactly. officers. The chief was in the building. He knew that those that wasn't an office that that guy was contained in. The officers outside, they didn't know. The officers from outside agencies, they didn't know. They thought this guy had contained himself in an office. What's the hurry? Let's slow it down. That That's logical, right? Well, that wasn't the case. And there were some key people there that knew that that could have changed the scenario. And what they didn't do was create the urgency to get in there and kids bled to death and died. Now, 
according to my nephew, those kids were that were dead were shot unrecognizable. They'd used DNA to identify them. If that tells you how horrific the crime scene was, I have a feeling that he also may have run out of ammo or had come down to hardly anything because he dropped his grab bag uh, somewhere out in the parking lot, and he had oh I don't know thirty more magazines or more loaded with. I don't know, thirty or forty rounds. I don't know. Uh, I think that's an, that's another interesting point because the the shooting at the at the Heston the the guy um, why am I drawing a blank um, at the, the the lawnmower place there starts with an E. I can't remember. Anyway, oh, Ridge. Yeah. So that 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 officer, I was asking him. I was like, hey, uh, the the chief there who's now in charge of KC Post. Um, I said, hey, did, was there a piece of equipment or? a piece of, of information or something that was missing that you wished you'd had post, um, post incident that looking back, I wish I had this. And he, he talked about those go bags. He's like, you know, those go bags, you know, we were given those go bags with like, like medical supplies and ammo and all that other kind of stuff, but we never trained with it. And he said, so when I got out of the car, I didn't get out of the car with the bag. And he's like, and it was worthless in my car. Because we'd never trained with it. And I was like, aha. So I wonder if that's some of it. Because I will tell you. And granted, I'm used to wearing a vest and a belt and all that. So I'm used to some having some things that are cumbersome. But trying to run with that bag on is a pain in the butt. Because it wants to flop all over the place. And, and then I could see somebody. Because most of these these people that go into school shootings, they're, they're mentally weak people. I could see them going like, that's uncomfortable. I don't like it. I'm just going to drop it. Be done with it. Again, making vast inferences here. But I, I could just see that being the, the thought process or um, I know the heat's on and like cops are here. And so I want to run faster. I want to get to my goal. I want to get my anger out. And like that was kind of the focus. So that maybe that, that was probably a good thing that he hadn't trained with that. Yeah. Um, but in this case, we're talking about the suspect dropped his grab bag. Yeah, that's what I meant. I was talking about the suspect dra- dropping his grab bag. Was that a no oh, thing? because it was so heavy. Yeah, yeah, that, that it was cumbersome to run with it and keep it and hold right. it. And, you know, if you had 30 mags worth of ammo in there, that thing ain't light. That is not a right. light bag. Was that right. a known thing to the guys in the building that he didn't have much ammo? No, I don't think that that's even a known thing to me. I'm just supposing that. So he had some kind of shirt or vest on that. He probably had, he shot 100 rounds um, in that classroom. And the lion's share of those rounds were fired before the officers arrived. So I think that there had only been 11 shots fired after the officers arrived. So that that's a different mindset. And then after the other officers were surrounding the building, I think we have an additional four shots that were fired. So it really, in their minds, really did slow down to a trickle. Like, okay, he's still a threat, but more to himself than us. You know, I don't think that they knew that he was in a classroom. Uh, most of the officers. In fact, that's what my nephew said, is that the officers outside thought that he was in an office. So I don't think that the officers around there understood that he was in a classroom. Now, this is interesting. About four or five minutes after the uh, incident started, one of the officers showed up and said, my wife's in there and she's hurt. She told me she's hurt. And they disarmed him and they ushered him out. She was uh, one of the two female teachers that died. She was still alive when they got her out of the 
classroom. She died at the hospital along the way. And he was trying to drive the action when he showed up and they didn't listen to him. They restrained him. There were parents that showed up that they restrained that wanted to get in there. There were mama bears that actually got their kids out from, you know, another classroom. They weren't going to listen to law enforcement. And that's not a precedent we want to set. And I want to tell you, this this bothers me because outside of the George Floyd video, this is the most devastating video, an indictment against law enforcement, modern law enforcement. In our time, I've never seen anything that's more devastating to the reputation of law enforcement. Because George Floyd, we look like brutes. Now we look like cowards. Amen. And that's that's unacceptable because that is not what I've learned about law enforcement since I've been a, a cop. And that's not what I see. That's not what I train. Or, or, the officers are not cowards by any means. And I don't believe that the officers in that hallway were cowards. I think the initial responders flubbed it and maybe didn't have the training or didn't 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 do what they were trained to do but everyone who's arriving after man they're manned up they're ready to go in there they're cowboyed up and ready to take care of business and they're being restrained by the chief and that's an interesting fact the chief gets on the radio and says keep everybody out of here we're waiting on the SWAT team and keys and other shields and all that good stuff too yes Okay, so here's my question. You're one of the officers in the hallway. What are you going to do? Now that you arrive late, you're officer number nine that gets in that hallway. you got a chief over here who's saying, hold the mail, don't go anywhere, he's contained, he's barricaded. All the officers are being looked down upon as though they failed to act. Well, if we're talking like I don't, I don't have the benefit of hindsight in this situation. Obviously, is if I'm officer number nine, I'm going to trust that the previous eight officers, especially the the commander, knows what's going on, and he knows that even though it may be erroneous, that he knows that this person's in an office, that there's no active loss of life, that we're barricading. You know, because I even as I'm reading the report, I'm thinking, okay, if you if you were in that mindset, like let's say that's the situation, you can you can maybe start evacuating other parts of the school, whatever, like whatever other tasks it is that you decide that you're going to complete. So as officer number nine, I am going to trust the other eight officers that I've trained with, that I've put my life on the line with, and that are in the shit with me right now, and I'm going to say, okay. And I'm just going to sit there and I'm going to wait until I'm told to do otherwise. Again, without the benefit of hindsight in this situation. Okay. Let's say you're the chief. And you have integrity and you have the wherewithal to um, know that the action needs to drive forward, uh, especially after as many shots have been fired that you're aware of. 24 shots were fired outside. So I knew this guy was shooting. They knew there were kids in that building, and they knew he'd barricaded. Let's say you were a chief who actually would admit that he's in a classroom with other kids. Before there was 40 minutes into yeah. the scenario where the girl was dialing 911 and talking to 911 operator 40 minutes after it started. You're you're one of the, you're in the hallway 
how are you going to get in that classroom? What are your thoughts? Did they try to evacuate kids out of like the adjoining classrooms, ones that were like right next door? Not yes. adjoining, but they actually broke windows and got them out from outside instead of going down the hallway and getting them out. Okay. They didn't want to expose them to dangers, and the teachers knew not to open the windows. That was part of the training, so they had to go window by window, break the windows out, and pull the kids out one by one. Okay. So, I mean, are we talking uh, overall tactics, or are we talking tactics in reference to my specific school? Because I don't exactly know what the windows and things look like. I know you talked about the safety windows outside the classroom, but well, the windows are probably two feet by. Four feet, they slide up and down. Okay. So, well, no, they're, uh, yeah, they're a little over two feet I wide. Think, I think I would be a little he- hesitant to talk tactics in this situation on a public forum for my specific school because I've got some ideas of how I would breach that room, but I don't want anybody that would want to use this to, to try to plan to hurt kids. So I probably won't speak that, but I mean, I, I don't know what else. I, I don't have the, the, the SWAT and experience and things like that. So I would probably rely on, like, for instance, there's a there's an officer in our county named Cameron Beakley that he he has the tactical training. He has that tactical expertise. And, and if he were on scene, I would default, hey, what do you think? We need to get into this room. Like, get, get me a game plan. Like, I don't care how it gets done. Get in that room and, and, and neutralize this guy kind of thing. We've got active loss of life. Let's figure it out. Um, because, you know, obviously my mind goes then to like, okay, safety glass, well, you could explosive breach the room, but then you've got kids inside, you know, so, you know, all those things run through my mind. I probably have to defer default to someone else of like, because in that moment, you're going to have to take a few minutes. And of course, I'm not going to be in the hallway. Um, I learned that valuable lesson from Derek Plotz in our last shooting. He definitely took a step back in the last, uh, the last officer involved shooting or the officer involved shooting we had with a sheriff and under sheriff where he realized I'm the only administrator that is not boots on the ground. Uh, okay. Here's the exterior window. Okay. So he's showing us a picture on Google meet right now. It's kind of like your, your typical, what you would see in a window of a house, but there's like four different panes and each pane is probably like how, how wide would those oh, there's typically two. be? There's two. Oh, there's two. Okay. It just opens that way. So, ah. Oh, so they, they like slide down and slide in? Yeah, slide uh, down and up and down. Well, and, and those probably are only a couple of panes worth of glass. You know, I mean, you could, you could break and rake that probably. That doesn't look like safety glass. I don't see anything that's no, running through no, there. that was at the door. This is what I was talking about, the door. Yeah, okay. So that's a significantly smaller window. Yeah, so obviously your best bet's going to be trying to hit from the outside to try to get to the inside. Well, alerts um, made several tactical assessments, and they made several suggestions. One of them was, you know, why don't you go in room one twelve? And they were adjoining rooms, so uh, if if you could get in room one twelve, even if you had to beat beat through the the um, the sheetrock to get in there, get in there. Um, Another suggestion they made was, hey, draw fire to you at the door and try to figure out where the fire's coming from and return fire from the glass. And yeah, you might get hit, you might get killed, but it's just going to be another 10 soldiers stepping up and taking over where you fell down. We're going to drag you out, you're hit, we're going to drag you out, somebody else is going to step up. And now if he's being counterattacked, let's say from room 112, 
and the window outside. Like, so my point is that chief could have developed an ad hoc plan. He knew those schools better than anybody. And um, he was taking precedence over the sergeant who was on the scene. Who I think the sergeant really wanted to get in there, even though he was telling everybody, hey, be careful, he's got a gun and all that stuff, you know, which isn't the time to say that. That's my opinion. I mean, I have officers that I work with that disagree with that wholeheartedly, and I want to put that out there, that they think that, yes, do be careful, but also be dangerous. And I'm not saying don't duck if you're being shot at. I'm saying, you know, take the fight to him. Yeah, and right. draw the fire to you. That's your job. You know, priority of life says that officers' lives come before the suspect's life, but which we call the actor, the active shooter. But they're they're subordinate to innocent people, and that's what we get trained to do. That's what we get paid for. I always say when people ask me, "Why do you why do you make so much money?" I said, "Well, it's not." What'd you do today? And I said, well, it's not what I did today. It's what I'm willing to do. Lay down my life for a total stranger. That's what I'm willing to do. And, you know, I, I would hope and like to think that my training would kick in and I would just, it'd be automated. Um, but that's why you got to keep training too. So I also want to say this about the chief. Um, there appears to be an, uh, an air of arrogance about him um, as I watch him on there and that's why i suspect he didn't attend the training and so when you meet up with a narcissist who is in charge right this guy doesn't want to be trained because like he knows it all right so and i've worked for people like this and and it's in our industry it's in every industry a lot of time your your most dangerous people are at the top because they know it all right which means they're unteachable and I, I really think that some of these guys come in thinking they know it all because they've done so much in their careers. They don't realize that it's a constantly evolving trade where we have to keep learning. We have to keep getting better. We can't stay, we can't rely on and rest our laurels on what we've done in the past. I would so, argue that's that's any industry and anywhere really. Like you, if, once you get complacent, you fall behind in any trade. Whether that's working construction or being a football coach or being a cop, you know, you get complacent, you fall behind. You know, so you constantly got to be learning. Absolutely. In fact, I played high school football and I went back and coached junior high football in the early two thousands, and they were beyond what I knew in high school. <laughs> Nothing like me. Like, I can't teach you anything. <laughs> no, could you please teach me what you already know. I mean, I'm serious because little league football wasn't a thing when I was a kid. I, I didn't hit football till I was in junior high. So mm -hmm. these kids were learning what I learned in high school in junior high and before junior high, they were learning it in little league. So yeah, and I've got to say that these kids that are going to be active shooters are beyond what law enforcement is learning because they're on these simulators all night long and they're 
playing these games all night long. Now, I'm not saying every kid that plays a game is an active shooter someday. I'm saying every active shooter is going to play those games because they're going to learn from those games how to defeat law enforcement. They are getting more and more realistic, especially when it comes to technology and training and like even even games now like you can start shooting through walls that's not something that like uh i played a video game that you could shoot through the walls so to me that was something that i i had thought of or shooting through windows and video games and stuff like some some officers you see at training they they will not engage people through windows it's almost like it's that um that uh, the old adage of like you're worried about the kid you being a kid and you're going to get in trouble for breaking the window and you're going to have to pay for it to be fixed kind of thing and so there, there is something to that, um, you know, because like, any more realistically, like look at uh, Rainbow Six Siege, like all the tech that you get to use in that game to tactically maneuver through mm-hmm. to put like the robots into the rooms to look around, to gather the intel. How do I how do I ingress? How do I egress? How Knocking do I how do I create? Holes. Yeah. How do I? Uh, yeah. The, the portholes. How do I create a distraction? You know, you name it there. There's there's something to that. I agree. And and I, I like how you also said, you know, I'm not saying everybody that plays these games are going to be active killers. But, you know, there, there is a there is something to that. I mean, it, it is a it is a training simulator. I mean, hell, we went we went through the at least I did went through that in the training academy. We played a literal video game for use on use of force. So it has right. training techniques. So the biggest failure occurred with the first responders by not driving the action beyond what Jave did when he got fragments in the head and then they stopped. Well, your job is to stop the killing and then stop the dying. So if the guy even quits shooting, you know, there's kids in that room that are dying. You got to get in there and they could hear the screams. We've been prevented from hearing all that. They, They haven't let us hear the videos. So, how in God's name do you hear those kids in there screaming for their lives and him shooting them? How in God's name do you stay in that hallway? So those initial first responders should be held to the highest standard and then as well as the chief. Um, and I'm going to propose that they should even be indicted. I think that they should be prosecuted for failure to act. Um, they had a duty, in my opinion, to act in that situation to prevent loss of life. Um, now, we don't hold, according to Supreme Court, officers to individual uh, protection of citizens. But when you're at a mass shooting situation like that, and you have the vest, you have the weapon, you have the training, you have to go. There's no, should I go? Should I stay? No, it's you have to go. You have a moral obligation to step it up and get in there. Yeah, that, that, should I, that should I stay or should I go uh, should have been a, a conversation you had with yourself many, many, many moons prior prior to ever wanting to strap all of that stuff on. At the very least, they need to surrender their badges. I have no problem saying that. But I also, I'm going to put myself out there and say they need to be indicted for um, the, the outcomes. I mean, to me, um, their negligence resulted in the deaths, even though they weren't the they weren't the uh, ones causing the death. They allowed it to happen. So this is no different than letting a drunk driver get behind the wheel and then go down the highway and careen into another car. You had an obligation to stop him to protect the lives of others. And I'm going to say that they failed, and the chief 
he ought to serve the longest time because he was he was the the common denominator in the outcome of this. I mean, he was his, the main failure point, really. Yes, but those first responders had the most information. They never corrected it. They never corrected the misinformation. I, I'm sorry. If, I mean, That's if you don't hold problem. hold guys accountable like like when they mess up like this, then who's to say the next time it's not different? You know, people aren't gonna see this and like, oh, okay, well they get away with that, so why can't we? You know, it's yeah. not gonna set the precedent for future incidents moving forward. And I, I'm sorry if there's officers listening that think that that's too harsh or I've gone too far with that. I, I'm sorry they feel that way, but um, I felt that way in the George Floyd situation immediately after seeing that video that that officer needs to be indicted. I not necessarily, no not necessarily the officers around him. I didn't feel like they should have been because they were in training, and but this guy was a veteran and um, he should have been indicted for that. Um, I always felt that that way about Chauvin. And I was getting poo-pooed for that too, for saying that, but he ended up indicted. So, and, and he's serving time. So, but now you guys want to talk any more about the, the scene there, or do you want to move on to talk about what's driving these mass shootings? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of have some follow-up questions, I guess, on some of that and some follow-up comments on some of the things that you've talked about okay. up to this point, if you're okay with that. Absolutely. So one of the things you talked about was admin is, as, admin is a houseplant and how they're not dynamic decisions maker, di- excuse me, decision makers, and they're not dynamic in the field or they're not in the field. So I, I had a friend of mine who I would consider uh, someone that I look up to as a mentor uh, for for my job and just life in general, not just being a law enforcement officer, but he, he, so I'm listening. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, he, he told me that, uh, that one of the things that I was, since I'm, I'm in, interested in running for public office was he said, if you think you're going to be a working sheriff and if you think that you're going to be mm-hmm. out on the street, like you're sorely mistaken, because that's, that's one of the things that even I notified noticed was, that that some of the admin that I had, and not all of them, like some of them have been great, some of them have been active, but some of them weren't. And I noticed that that kind of atrophy, essentially, in in the same way you'd see a muscle atrophy. And so, so I, I wanted what I'm asking you is, is how do you combat becoming an admin houseplant? Because let, it is a dichotomy. If you show up to calls, your officers are going to think like, oh, what did I do wrong? Blah blah blah. Like. So do you just get out there and stop cars? Do you get out? I mean, like, what, what, like, how do you, how do you, obviously you can go to things like alert training, but training can only go so far. So how do you combat becoming admin as a houseplant? Well, I'm speaking from becoming a houseplant. It happened to me when I was a major. So the first scenario I told you about with the officer that I gave him the green light, told him to take the guy out. I was a captain and I, and I was a working captain on night response. So I was out making calls, but right before I got promoted to captain, I was a detective in the fugitive apprehension unit where I was out, you know, snagging guys and chasing guys and kicking in doors. And so I was used to, I was default aggressive, right? So it was easy for me to move to action. 
you know, I had a bias towards action. When I became a major, my duties changed. You know, as, as, as the leader of a unit of more than 90 people, you, you're overseeing everything. You can't be all places at all times. So you do a lot of shit from your desk, right? And, um, I would get several hundred emails a day and it, it, it's, it, it was difficult to keep up on my emails, man. Um, writing policies, creating units, creating, um, new enforcement actions, um, use of force reports I was reviewing and signing off on and things like that. So, um, you know, I thought about your question even before we got on here today. I had a situation when I was a major where I was called out to go to a scene. They were getting ready to take down some drive-by shooters. They had spotted the car. We had surveillance set up on these drive-by shooters. They had done a drive-by at a house. We were expecting them to go back. The feds were up on these guys. They were listening to their phone calls. They even knew which house they were going to hit. So our job was to take these guys down. Well, my colonel calls me and says, get out there and make sure this doesn't get screwed up. So-and-so is one of our officers who's out there, and you know he's aggressive, and he's going to end up causing this to be a shitstorm, right? Can you hear me? I'm yeah, kind of set. You're fine. You were good. Okay. So what do you think that, the colonel sent me out there to do micromanage mitigate risk. Okay. He didn't want to get sued. He didn't want the police department to get sued. So where do you think my mindset is at? You know, I've been in bed for over an hour and he wakes me up and says, get your ass out there. That's my mindset. Well, I get there, I get briefed. The officer in question is already out in the field. He's setting off the, the car, right? They end up following this guy. This guy t- uh, was a car. F- There's four guys in the car that were armed. They had rifles. They were headed to do the drive-by. We, Our undercovers start following this car. The car takes off from them, thinking they're being, you know, chased. We end up boxing them in about three miles away. They start ramming our cars. I show up with my pretty commander SUV. I don't want to be a part of that box. And so I stay out in the street um, where I could observe everything, but not necessarily get involved in the action. You know, next thing I know, one of, Missouri officers start shooting and well, they hold on. They threw, they launched a flashbang at the car. The flashbang goes off and then that triggers a bunch of shooting. I had two captains at the scene. They're, they're standing up shooting into the car too. So I'm, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, what in the hell is going on? And uh, one of the guys, a driver, you no, know, was a passenger on the rear passenger, crawls out of the car and <laughs> crawls across the street on his belly, and they take him into custody. But there's three people shot in that car. 
So I bring my captain over. I set him down in the car. I, I, I get out of my car and I'm asking, what, what, what happened here? And I asked my captain, what in the hell? I thought it was a contagion, you know, where one guy shoots and then you have a sympathetic reaction and everybody starts shooting. That's what it seemed like a firing line. And we had probably 10 or 12 officers there. That were, uh, I don't know how many shot into the car. I can't remember. It was five or six. And um, I thought, not only are we getting sued, there's going to be some officers indicted over this, you know? Well, what happened was I brought my captain and set him down in the car and said, what in the hell did you do? Why were you involved in that? Why were you shooting it? He goes, man, the dude had a rifle and he was pulling it out. You didn't see it? I said, no. He goes, man, I'm standing right there on the other side of your car and I've got my rifle aimed at him. They throw the flashbang and the guy jerks the rifle up out of the window and that's why I shot him. So we had three suspects shot. They're all headed to the hospital. They all survived. They were not mortal wounds. They were flesh wounds or leg wounds or whatever. And they all survived. And... um. I felt like I felt to I, I, I felt to command that situation, but I let the sergeant. At least I had enough sense to let Sergeant Greenwell run it. I mean, during the incident, I didn't interfere, and then even after the incident, he had Missouri officers from you know his specialized unit that were over there that were involved in the shooting, and then I had my captains that were involved in the shooting, and and I had to call the colonel. <laughs> And I don't know if I was incoherent when I called him or what, but he sent me every major that we had on the police department. And they came out there. They more or less relieved me of duty, and they took over the scene. And I felt I felt humiliated. But, Nick, it's not that I couldn't make a decision. It's that I couldn't clearly see what was going on. I couldn't clearly see the need to shoot those guys. And I was a little bit disturbed by what I was, what my understanding of what I was seeing. I, I would have underreacted. Well, all of those guys were primed to act. They, they, um, they were ready and primed and, and willing to get aggressive at the least sign of any kind of resistance or hesitation from these guys. These guys had already done a drive-by shooting. They were headed to do another one. I just woke up and I was an ass plant and I wasn't default aggressive anymore. It was in my history. But see, I had gotten to the point to where I wasn't a part of the SWAT training. I wasn't out on their operations anymore. Now, the next day we had a big staff meeting and I got raked to the coals. I had to sit there in front of the colonel and in front of every major on the police department and explain to them why things turned out the way they did. Now, they were all, no, nobody's reprimanded. They were all cleared um, of everything. Um, and I was too, by the way. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't used to dynamic decision-making. I'd been a commander for 14 years, 
but I'd been a major going on four years. This was one of the last uh, dynamic situations I was involved in as a, as a police officer before I retired. And I didn't have a bias towards action anymore. And, you know, that's not easy for me to admit, but I think it's helpful if there's anyone listening that is in those situations, whether they're in the military or whether they're in law enforcement, to admit to yourself that, hey, man, I, I'm not out there every day making decisions like I need to be. You know, I'm not put in those situations anymore. You've got to let the people, the frontline supervisors, make those decisions. And then you can evaluate it afterwards because guess what? You're you're not in the mix anymore. So you gotta train if, them the way they need to be trained and then you gotta decentralize. Yes. Commands. Yes. That's exactly what Jocko talks about. Mm-hmm. You gotta train your troops and then step back and let them make the decisions. So speaking from small law enforcement agency where, you know, as you, you know, you don't have every major in the department and multiple sergeants and all this other kind of stuff, you might have a sergeant, you know, and like uh, and that's pretty much your your only first line supervisor. So how how would you? I mean, because the reason I'm asking is because I want to know from me to get my mind rolling. How would you keep from to make sure that you as a as a as a sheriff or or administrator stay in at least kind of help keep that default aggressive? Now, not to say that you're standing in the middle of the hallway of the active shooter. But like that way, when you do go to make the decisions, you're helping make the decisions for the betterment of your your community going home safe and then also your officers going home safe. So do you choose every Wednesday you go out and you run traffic or you're going to be out on the street or an hour a day? I'm going to just say enough with the emails and I'm going to go out and I'm going to patrol or like what? What, what do you, what do you see as a way to kind of help come back? Cause again, training is important. I mean, like attending like an alert training or bringing those things to your community and, and training on that is good. But, but I mean, actually getting out, putting hands on and doing things, which, you know, obviously I understand that a sheriff or a chief is not going to pick up a, you know, $50,000 financial crimes case. That's going to take nine months to investigate, but at least getting out there and engaging with the community, still talking to people and staying sharp. Well, Two things I would do in your scenario if you were going to be the sheriff. Um, um, I have downtime as a campus police officer, so I choose to use my downtime watching YouTube. And a lot of what I do is I watch um, podcasts. Of, I either listen to things like Jocko Willink or I'll watch some of these videos of armed robberies and how they end. And I'll I'll listen to the commentaries and then I'll send those to the other officers. Um, And the reason why is I want to keep fresh because this may happen. I may need my weapon someday and I want to think it through. Your body can't do what your mind hasn't already thought through. It's not a reflex to pull your gun out and shoot somebody that is training. So, you are training your mind by watching those videos. And the other thing I would do, especially if I was a sheriff, like you want to be, is ride with um, some of the other jurisdictions. Just do ride-alongs. We had chiefs that would do ride-alongs. And uh, they would pick uh, a different area every month, and they would go out. And we had one chief that made all the off, all the all all his commanders go out and ride once a month. They had to pick one 
shift a month on midnights or evenings, and they had to go out and had to spend eight hours with 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 an officer, not a sergeant, but an officer, and um, they loved it. They thought it was great, and it, it reconnected them to their roots. How did the line officer see that? They thought it was great. Okay, I just figured that they would see that as a. So they're riding with their own officers or they're riding with officers from other jurisdictions? No, it was their own officers. Okay, so, because uh, I just could see sometimes of, like, the I could see the the um, the fifth quarter talking of, well, I'm, I'm getting, they're watching us or they're trying to see if we're going to screw up. You know, I could see that being some of the mentality Maybe that they received. Yeah. But after a while, they accepted it and they were actually honored that they were the one that were that was picked to do the ride along with. And again, you know, some commanders didn't like doing it, so they'd get out of it or they'd only ride a couple hours and then they, you know, they would check out. But for the most part, most of the commanders enjoyed it. Once they got plugged in and they wanted, they looked forward to it. It was a feedback that I was getting. Um, so when we're, since we're on the subject of how do you combat things, you talked about being combat ready, essentially, and, you know, staying sharp. So you have those obviously retired on duty officers that you get. How do you help to like motivate them? Because I mean, you've got guys that have been in it for 25, 30 years and they're basically in coast mode. You know, they'll show up for the, the annual qualifications. They'll show up for the in services because they're told to be there or because it's overtime. But, you know, essentially they've become the house plant, but they aren't even, they aren't even in admin. Like how, how do you combat or help motivate those individuals? You don't. Uh, I figured that was how much be the time answer. are we talking? I mean, if these guys are near retirement, why would you want to motivate them to go out and do anything? They just need to maintain um, their duties as far as if something bad happens, they need to be there and they need to take part of it. But you don't want to really encourage a guy who's near retirement to go out and get motivated and start writing the tickets. Yeah, and right. That, that I understand. To- like if you get ready to turn in your retirement papers, but I'm talking guys that are maybe halfway through that are just kind of, you know, they're, 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 they're dealing with that, some of that secondary traumatic stress and things like that. And, and, and they are retired on duty. They're just coasting through uh, and, and just wanting to get through the day. Well, okay. Now there's two types. There's types that um, are beginning to burn out, but the reputation is that they were a worker. And now they're going through a lag time. Well, so I went through that several times in my career. I wasn't lazy, but I had certain things that had happened to me and throughout my career to where I'm just shutting down. I mean, there's nothing you're going to do to make me work if I don't want to, because I'm just shutting down for a while. One of the times was when my brother got fired. Uh, my brother got fired for a traumatic accident that he was involved in. He got his job back. But once we realized that, you know, our, our administration didn't have our back, you're not going to blast me out of my chair. So there was a lag time there where I was burned out. And I, you didn't want me and my attitude out there doing things at the moment. Now, I, I did the necessary things that, you know. I, I was supposed to be doing. I showed up to work. I, I I answered my calls. I was thorough. But as far as self-initiated, forget it. I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't in the right mindset. So 
I'm just being frank, you know, I think every seven years an officer goes through that. About every seven years. I, I would I agree with that. I've been there before myself. That was told to me when I came on. You know, you're going to you're gonna be married to the job. It's going to be your mistress. Be careful of that because she will not love you back. So don't love your job. Your job will not love you back. But you're going to do it anyway. And you're going to go out there and you're going to live and breathe this stuff. And then in about year seven, you're going to realize, oh, man, she's cheating on me. She doesn't love me. And then you're going to get disenfranchised. You're not, you know, the infatuation wears off. The honeymoon's over. And now you hate this bitch. And that, that's going to last until you move into another area. And that's what my father taught me was if you don't want to get burned out, keep moving. Do other things. Learn new things. And that'll keep it fresh. And that's what I did. So I also, I divorced the department in the sense that it no longer became my mistress. This was child support. So even though it was still my calling to support this child, uh, it was no longer an infatuation. Um, it wasn't, I didn't live and breathe it anymore. It was, I, I became more balanced, Nick. And that balance was, you know, my faith my children and my hobbies were all as equally as important as my job. And then I became a better cop. I was, I, I had more common sense after that. And I approached things like from the perspective of the common man, I wasn't just living and breathing, being a cop, being a hotshot cop. Um, so that's that's really good. I like that. And and I can also relate to some of that because my priorities have changed when it comes to, you know, going to church and hanging out with the family. And if that's playing video games with the kids because that's what they want to do or, you know, just got done taking a trip with my wife to Illinois that I got back from yesterday, uh, you know, and things that that I early in my career, I would have been like, now nah, I got to go to work. Now nah, I got to go to work. Now nah, I got to go to work. You know, like that, that was like my main focus of like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to I'm going to like. Cause it was fun. It's so much fun and it still is. And, and it's so easy to get wrapped up in that. And, and it's the, the analogy you gave is so incredibly accurate. I'd never heard it that way before, but it's so incredibly accurate. So I appreciate that. Um, so well, back to the leadership early on, you talked about casting a vision and then thinking ahead of time. Um, I, I wanted to give an example of how this worked of something that I've seen in the casting, the vision and thinking ahead of time was we recently switched over to an 800 megahertz radio system. And I say recently, I think it's been a year or two, something like that. And, um, the gentleman that put that together that were basically kind of spearheading that was the communications director, Josh Michaelis and the emergency management director at the time, Greg Klein, who's now the uh, emergency services director. And they, they had the forethought and, and also, you know, people, they surrounded themselves with people that knew this too, where when we were testing, setting these, this radio system up, they brought in what's called a cow, which is communication on wheels. So essentially if you have a major incident happen, like a tornado destroys your radio infrastructure, they bring this, they bring this trailer in and they put an antenna in the air. Boom. Now you have communications again. So they brought that in and took and all of us officers and gave us 800 megahertz radios and said, all right, go throughout the community, go into houses, go into schools, go into the fire department, which is a big metal building, go into all these places. And here's a piece of paper. 
and now say, um, now say you're gonna you're gonna key the radio, and first of all, were you able to connect? Yes or no? And if you were able to connect, like what would you rate the sound quality when you received a reply? And then also, what was the building made of? Was it metal? Was it brick? Was it was it um, was it sheetrock? What was the makeup of it? And as a result of all that work, because at first everybody was like, oh, gosh, this is so stupid. Why do we got to do this? This doesn't make sense. And like, this is a waste of my time, which me, I was nerding out because it was new tech. And I was like, hell yeah, sign me up. Um, but because of that, my radio only doesn't work in a few places. Like there's no perfect radio system, right? And you, you know that as well as I do. And so they casted a vision. They stuck with it, even though they kind of got some flack for it. And they were thinking ahead of time and, and were able to like, so I can communicate inside of my schools with my radio because we planned how the towers were placed in the county through that. So I just wanted to kind of segue back to or circle back to that about casting the vision and thinking ahead of time. And let's face it, it's, it's, it's technology and it, there's weather and all that. And who knows, maybe there's a critical incident there sometime and the radios don't work well. But another thing that was like, okay, use runners talk to people, have them run out to the command post and relay a message. And it was like, okay, duh, simple, but effective is one thing they talked about in the, in the Uvalde report. So, um, uh, there was, there's a, I think there was a lot of really great things that, that have been said today. And, uh, especially when it comes to like the leadership and, and like what happened there and what we can do better. And I think there's a lot of, of things that if you're listening to the podcast and, and I don't care if you're an officer that you have been on the street for a week, or if you're that commander that's been um, doing the job for 25, 30 years, it doesn't matter where you're at in an organization. You can be a leader. You can cast that vision. You can think ahead of time. You can also even change because if you're a rural law enforcement officer, you're going to hear, um, you're going to hear Bill say things like move in the department, go to things like SWAT and detective and blah, 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 where you're thinking, okay, like my department, I don't have any of that. But, you know, what I did was I was like, DRE, that sounds cool to me. I'm going to go do that. That was like another another thing. Hey, uh, being a precision rifle marksman, that sounds cool to me. That's like something new. I'm going to go do that. Keeping in mind, I had to pay for the precision rifle marksman stuff myself. But I kept I kept that stuff going. And where there's a will, there's a way. And you can keep that stuff going. You can keep yourself motivated. I don't think that it rests solely on your leadership in your law enforcement agency to basically patch your butt through your career and to make you stay motivated and all that other kind of stuff. There well, is some accountability there. And this stuff doesn't just apply to law enforcement officers. Amen. You know, I was going to go to business after this. It so. works for everybody, you know, in all stages of companies and stuff like even in construction, you know, there's all sorts of different trades within construction. And for me, like I want to be challenged. Like if I'm just doing trim every freaking day i'm gonna get so bored and burnt out i'm gonna go find something else to do you know with my company luckily there's enough things to do different that like i stay challenged most of the time and like when you move up and out and then you also have to get hands off and decentralize a little bit and you've got to give and if you're more in a superintendent position you know you're hands off like you're not swinging a hammer every day you're gonna let your guys that are on the ground, boots on the ground every day, are going to be the ones making the decisions on how to do these remodels and builds. And because if you you're telling them what to do, they're going to feel micromanaged, and you don't want them to feel that way. Well, and and also I think some of the ways is like they 
they kind of had the expertise and the knowledge and the boots on the ground because sometimes the angles and the measurements and all that stuff don't quite make like add up Mm -hmm. so in your line of work for instance they if you try to come in and tell them like this is what you need to do well it's like okay we we can't do that because this is how this works and so i mean you get trusting them to do their job so that they don't have to ask for essentially like permission to fire right bill yeah right because you get asked plants and construction and like every aspect of business so well i have to uh pick up my son from my mother-in-law he is uh she is persistent that i have to come get him so i think we should uh look at maybe trying to wrap this up and um you know i I think we could continue to even go further because i know you mentioned like okay now we can start to even mention why why are these things happening and then we can also even start mentioning into that could be another podcast yeah no kidding exactly probably will be yeah we should you don't if you if you're not in tune with your own thoughts on god and stuff you're not going to want to tune into that because i have some thoughts on where this is going in our country and why we're here so maybe that that's another podcast but hey i do want to say thanks for giving me the opportunity to express my thoughts on this i really feel like not enough has been said to those parents that had to endure this national tragedy yeah i would agree with that i don't know what it was like locally for him but like the first few weeks you heard about it every day and then after that it was just nothing um i apologize to them if they're if anyone's listening to this that's from there i apologize for the lack of efficiency in law enforcement and then it's our bad we we should have been in there that was that was a horrible outcome that we don't train for things to happen like that and i guarantee you like 95 percent of those officers that were there didn't understand what was actually occurring most of those shots were fired before they got there i guarantee you that they feel horrible for you and we we all signed on for this and you know they're going to take their lumps but the guys that made the decision you know, who knew kids were in there, the guys that made the decision purposely not to go in there or misrepresent what was going on, they've got to live with that decision. And they, I assure you, they will be having nightmares the rest of their lives. Hopefully they'll get right with God and then get right with you guys the best that they can. But uh, I, I feel horrible for you and I feel horrible for those kids. And this is a black eye on the face of law enforcement that we will never get rid of. Um, this goes beyond a black eye. This is, this is more like an orbital socket break that has deformed our appearance in law enforcement. And, you know, just try to remember that uh, anyone listening to this, that this does not represent the heart of law enforcement. Think about this. Doggone it. That guy found the one door that was open to that school. There was no other doors open. He happened to luck out and find the one door. And then he found the one door that wouldn't lock. And that doesn't happen normally. I mean, that that is evil incarnate, the walking into that school, uh, doing what he did. 
And it just represents where our country's going with lawlessness. And that's another podcast, but my heart goes out to those families and those poor children. You know, I pray for those families. Amen. And, you know, if you're also some sort of a person that's tied into the schools, there's a lot from that Uvalde report that can be learned from the school perspective as well, which, again, shout out, I have to give to Jim Garaki because our superintendent has um, has definitely stepped up uh, to the plate on that. And, since and, then? Since yeah, then. He, he has basically, he told us, he said, if there are any doors on our schools propped open at any time, you let me know and I will go back and look at the camera footage and that person will be disciplined, period, end of story. Felicia got yelled at the other day. Yeah, I, that's where that came from. Yep. And when we, when we hop off here, I don't want to, there's a part about that, the security side of the schools that I wanted to tell you about that I don't want to discuss on the podcast. Um, so uh, with that being said, uh, anything, any final thoughts there? I think you kind of close it up. Anything else, Bill? Uh, nothing from me. Just thank God that, you know, I got a chance to talk to you guys, Nick and Nate, and this was another excellent adventure with you guys. Thank you. Yep. Well, we appreciate you coming on, and uh, we know that, like, although this was a tragedy, that guys like you are doing the right thing, and we're learning from it, and we're going to use this to um, better our education in law enforcement, you know, um, so that things like this doesn't happen and so lives are saved. Thank you. Good to hear from you, Nate. Yep. You too. Yeah, do the outro, buddy. Yep. Um, guys, thanks for listening to Higher Points. Um, had another great conversation with Bill Howard, and I think there's going to be more to come. So um, stay tuned for some of those. Um, go like us on our Instagram and Facebook and leave us a review. Um, want you guys to uh, go out and have a good week and uh, just go make the world a better place. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks, Bill. Thank you.